Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, when I, when I played Kobe Bryant as a, as a rookie, yeah, I knew. If you, if you read his scouting report, you'd say, duh, Kobe Bryant, quick first step. <laughs> Legendary finisher will draw fouls. Great in the post. Will will have has a great fadeaway in the post. Uh, tenacious defender. It's like yeah, no does. Thinking basketball podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today we're going to talk all about how players use analytics as part of their game preparation. So how they fold in data, how they fold in, fold in stats as part of scouting, strategy, implementation, and how that process has evolved over the years. The thing that I, you know, obviously has been a theme of mine for a long time is that the difference between what we think of as stats, like numbers, points, rebounds, assists, all this other stuff, and the qualitative tendencies of a player. How often does he go left? Does he have a good pull-up game? Can he finish at the rim? They are two sides of the same coin. They're part of the same thing. They're not really separate. It's that the numbers are just the counting and the measurements of the qualitative thing you're observing. And I imagine that will be a theme today. I wanted to bring in a former player to discuss this and Shane Battier was nice enough to take some time so we'll bring him in a minute former Rocket player Duke player Memphis Grizzlies he won two titles with the Heat Uh, and he's going to give us more of a defensive perspective since that was his focus versus an offensive perspective but I think it's the same principles which is as a player you are trying to put yourself in the best possible position to succeed and for your team to succeed The first time I actually saw numbers being used as part of game prep and scouting, now I'm sure, you know, the the history of this is much richer if you can dig deeper in the past, but but the first time I really saw a robust scouting report that was leaked to the public that had numerical tendencies was something the Knicks put together in the early 90s against Michael Jordan. You know, it was compiled by coaches and maybe scouts and things like this, but it said Michael Jordan would go left, you know, 39% of the time, right 61% of the time. Try to force him in one direction. Uh, He likes to pull up on one side of the floor and he likes to drive on the other side of the floor. Uh, Watch watch this move for drawing fouls. You know, don't bite on the up fake when he comes out of triple threat. Whatever it was, still a very heavily qualitative assessment, the kind of typical scouting report you'd see on a guy, but it had all these numbers in it from presumably what the coaches had tracked. And that was the early 90s. And so there is a history in the league of trying to use numbers to gain an advantage or to actually put a value on a tendency. How often do you make the free throw when you go to the line? 
except we've been measuring that since the beginning, so you just apply it to other stuff. In the early 80s, Dell Harris, when he was coaching the Rockets, would talk about maximizing possession efficiency. I mean, this is something, efficiency of possessions, thinking about how these things work, thinking about how to gain an edge. This has been present in the sport for a very, very long time. Dean Smith even, I think going back the decade before that, the great college coach at North Carolina, he would talk about some of this stuff. So the idea has been around for a long time. Measure stuff, improve, get an edge. Uh, A classic example is sort of inefficient shots. That's all that's really happened with the three-point movement. As we've just said, let's take out the long 20-footers. But this isn't the first time this happened. Back in the 60s, guys used to shoot this incredible sweeping hook shot. A lot of players would do it with both hands. It was sort of, you know, George Mikan was the original titan of the sport at a, at a high-level, uh, professional level with the early days of the NBA, and he had these sweeping hooks. So we learned the Mikan shot growing up. And back in the 60s, guys would shoot this thing from 15 feet away, right-handed hook, left-handed hook, running hook, whatever. It's not a very efficient shot, as you can imagine. And so that shot gets completely parsed out taken out of the game over time, coaches bench you and say, why are you shooting this shot? So the idea of trying to gain an advantage in your preparation, in your shot profile, in how you approach the game strategically has been there basically forever. None of this is really new. But what I asked Shane to talk about today was really how this has evolved in the last 20 years from the player perspective, how players are using data, how receptive they are to data, how it's become part of their process, things like that. So without further ado, let's bring him in. He is a two-time All-League defender. He won two titles with the Miami Heat. He won a national championship in college at Duke, and he's in his third year with the Miami Heat right now as vice president of player development and analytics, Shane Battier. Ben, great to uh, be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very excited. I actually wanted to ask you a trivia question before we kicked in. I didn't know this. I discovered this recently. Here's the trivia question. You may know it. How many people have ever won the Naismith National College Player of the Year and the Naismith prep high school national player of the year i know one guy Uh, do you you know one guy i know one guy i I don't have the second one um on the tip of my tongue but uh, i'm gonna say a minimum of one possibly two one is the correct answer shane battier is the only person ever to do that that's that's not bad that's not bad i didn't realize that (laughs) Did, did you know that um, when I won the award back in 2001 at Duke, uh, they, they told me I was the only one to have both trophies. So, uh, it's actually, it's actually pretty cool. Really cool bookends in my, uh, my, my library at home. And so, uh, you know, I don't have all the accolades that a lot of other guys have, but I do have two pretty amazing bookends. Yeah. 20 years and still no one has done that. Um, all right, before we kick off. I mean, I guess that's a natural segue into getting into what I wanted to talk about today. About, a, I think it's been 11 years since Michael Lewis wrote that huge 
New York Times piece on your approach to the game. And, and I went back and I revisited it. And there's a very interesting quote that, that jumped out to me. And it, here's the quote. I'll read it. It says, before the game, Battier was given his special package of information. He's the only player we give it to, general manager Daryl Morey says. We can give him a fire hose of data and let him sift through it. Most players are like golfers. You don't want them swinging when they're thinking too much. Is that true? Were you the only guy who got a special packet of data back in the day? I, I did. Um, you know, obviously, when I got traded to the, the Houston Rockets, uh, I was very fortunate to sort of learn from from Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and Yoda, <laughs> as I call them, of, of data, and Daryl Morey and, and Sam Henke. And it took me a long time to understand the value and, and sort of where uh, where those guys were coming from. Uh, but once I sort of got it, um, I, I told them, look, give me everything, give me everything on your servers and I will decide what is pertinent and what is not. And, uh, we, we got to a pretty good re- relationship, um, in terms of game prep. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Daryl and Sam, super, super brilliant guys, and I, you know, I like to think that I helped coach them a little bit, saying, "Hey, guys, this is too much," or "Hey, guys, this isn't pertinent. Like, this will never happen in a game, or it's, it's too much. Take it out." And so, um, you know, I thought we had a we had a really symbiotic relationship, uh, in a working relationship, when I played for the Rockets back in uh, the late aughts. So, did you always have a sort of proclivity for? data and taking in a lot of information i mean if we went back to say when you were at duke did you want more stuff coming in or was this something that sort of unfolded in houston well you have to go back to like my childhood okay oh now we're getting somewhere i was that i was that kid who you know the original tech mobile for nintendo was an amazing amazing game you know bo jackson you know unstoppable you know the niners jerry rice unstoppable but that game couldn't track stats. So I have like notebooks at home of me playing seasons of Tech Mobile and keeping my stats. Okay. So I, I was always kind of a stat nerd, even way back when. And then, then Baseball Stars came out for, for Nintendo, which was an amazing game. Yes. The first, yes. The first game that actually kept your stats. And I would play seasons upon seasons, you know, 164 games. And, uh, and so I've, I've always been fascinated by, by stats and by, uh, different ways to just look at the game. And, and so um, I, I've always drifted towards the numbers and that, that was always part of my, my preparation. And, um, you know, I always thought there was an answer out there. Uh, I, I looked at basketball as one, one big math problem, but it really wasn't until I got to Houston that I was able to connect the dots with, with data and my game prep and statistics. All right. So I want to get more into Houston in a little bit, but let's stay Let's stay in the past. Uh, what you said definitely resonated with me right now. When I was in high school, I got a couple, I broke my nose and I messed up my ankle. And that's when I started sort of going on, scouting with coaches, going on the road, like on the off nights and checking out opposing teams. And I realized like, well, wait, I'm watching the game here. And as I'm watching the game, you're essentially charting Right, you're you're using data and your qualitative assessment. Okay, these guys run. It was high school; they didn't run pick and roll back then. But whatever it was, they they got in a one-two-two press on eighty percent of possessions. Blah 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 blah. Did you have it back in high school? Did you use it in your prep? Was it college? Talk talk to me a little bit 
about when you were a younger player? You know, in high school, uh, there wasn't infrastructure really to, to give great scouting reports. You know, may, maybe in the state tournament, we knew what we we're dealing with, but uh, you know. We're talking late '90s here, so <laughs> very unsophisticated time. Pre-internet, yeah. Pre-internet. I mean, so you just went out and played, you know. And, and afterwards, you look at your stats in the in the old box score in the, in the local paper, and that's how you determine whether you're, the guy you guarded had a good game or not. Uh, and so there just wasn't quality information in terms of, of game prep. Obviously, when I when I got to college, the scouting reports were were much more robust. Um, but in a much more tra- traditional sense, uh, you know, playing against the North Carolina, you know, Antoine Jameson's got a great left shoulder in the post, quick first step. You know, Vince Carter shoots it from deep. Shimon Williams attacks off the pick and roll. So a lot of uh, qualitative, and that's what most scouting reports were, were, were just qualitative descriptions of, of who a player was or what a team really did well. And you'd, you'd see the major box score things like three-point percentage or field goal percentage or rebounds per game. Um, and you can, you can infer who did what, uh, but you could never really get to that next level of, of quantitative analysis of, of what a guy really, really was. And, and that was really the case even through my first uh, five years with the Memphis Grizzlies. And obviously, as, as you go up levels, the, the amount of detail in, the, in these qualitative scouting reports improves. Uh, but there was, uh, you know, there was only so much you could learn. Like, look, when I, when I played Kobe Bryant as a, as a rookie, yeah, I knew. If you, if you read his scouting report, you'd say, duh, Kobe Bryant, quick first step. <laughs> Legendary finisher will draw fouls. Great in the post. Will will have has a great fadeaway in the post. Uh, tenacious defender. It's like yeah, no duh. This guy's right. <laughs> you know? And so, but that's all. But that was the norm, and we didn't know any better. And so you you, you took that, and you thought you had an idea of, of how to how to approach playing against a certain player. Uh, but looking back at those those the, the salad days, the early days, you're like, man, I had no I had no idea really when it, when it came to it. So that was 2001, 2002, right? That was your rookie year. So you're in Memphis for five or so seasons. When in in those five years, was it always the same? Did things evolve, or did things not really change for you until you got to Houston? Things did not change until I got to Houston, and so okay. still robust, but more much more qualitative than quantitative. So, are you saying that in Memphis, essentially? standard prep the standard kind of package you would get is everything that you just went through it's very much like if you took a star player it's sort of the obvious things you would know know about a star player you didn't really have any numbers or specific tendencies that you cued in on uh quantitatively versus qualitatively is that right exactly and it was usually maybe a two-pager maybe a two-pager that included sort of the overview of the team scouting report what their strengths were were they a great offensive rebounding team did they fast break and then another page maybe on the on the players was there was that connected in any way to film work you would do before did you just get a a packet you know you're on the road and you get a packet and you got a a walkthrough in a game is that basically it? it it was pretty connected to the game um you know the, the the film work, the film study w- was much more, uh, much more compelling. Um, if it, if a coach wanted to highlight a certain pick and roll uh, tendency by a team, um, you know, like I, I remember the, the nightmares I still have about playing Utah in, in the famed one uh, four high set with, with Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer and Mamedo Kerr. 
um, they would highlight all the different options and the tendencies that the jazz would do. And, and even though there wasn't a huge sample size, you got a much better feel versus the quality, the qualitative scouting reports right. by watching films. Did you, did you do any work, uh, specifically with coaches outside of like a, a team film walkthrough or something? Is that individual work that you would do on your own? Not really, not really. That, that really wasn't the, um, in, ter- in terms of game prep, no. I'm obviously right, I work right. with coaches and improve my skills and, and uh, shore up some of the weaknesses that I had in my game, uh, which, which were vast. Uh, but in terms of game prep and prepping for a an opponent, you're really on your own. You really just had to figure it out within the team context uh, and the team philosophy defensively, um, while also trying to respect the guy that you're you're trying to guard that night. All right, so you get to Houston. Now I have my own little. Houston anecdote, when I was covering the Lakers in the 2009 season, uh, this was actually right after the Michael Lewis piece came out, you guys had a game in L.A. in Staples. And I remember walking into that locker room and seeing more packets of information in scouting reports. Maybe, Maybe they copied your packet a bunch. I don't know. I felt like everyone in that locker room had more information and these very like thick, almost like binders of reports compared to all the other teams who had come in the visiting locker room that season. So, I mean, talk to me a little bit more about basically that experience for you when you get to Houston, how it changes the game prep. <laughs> I think the first time I, I put on a Rockets uniform, I said, what is, what in the world is this? <laughs> uh, if you would see one of my, uh, my old scouting reports, you would see, it would, it would always contain the, the qualitative still. And so there were there were still descriptions from the advanced scouts describing, you know, how a how a Shaq played, you know, dominant low post score, gets deep in the post, isn't looking to to kick once he's once he catches in the paint, yada yada yada. But right below that would be, you know, pretty much like a, a three or four line sentence on the the quantitative tendencies of a guy like Shaq or a guy like Gary Payton or Richard Lewis. And, you know, for the first time, I was able to see, okay, not only did I know what his left-right splits were, but how much better he was maybe going right versus going left. And so for the first time, I could really um, really put it uh, a worst-case scenario and a best-case scenario for me as a defender uh, in, in a pecking order. And it was, it was really novel um, a, a novel way to, to look at guarding a guy. And, and basically, you know, this was Sam Hinkie. Sam Hinkie took, you know, and Daryl took a ton of time before every game. And after I got done with my, uh, my shooting routines to prep for that game, he and I would sit for, for 20, 25 minutes and we'd go over guy versus guy, spending a couple extra seconds on the guys that I would guard. And he would basically give me my best case and my worst case scenario as a defender. And after doing this for, for weeks at a time, I finally understood that there were some universal themes um, against every guy. And the nuance in understanding uh, where you could gain a little bit of edge was, was often the difference in a game. And so I learned, look, if you put a guy at the foul line, that's the worst case scenario. Guy could be a 50% through-throw through shooter. That's still a bad move to put him on the line. All right? If you allow, allow the guy in the paint, when you factor in his makes, misses, fouls drawn, his assists, 
um, it's bad news. So as long as you don't follow a guy and keep a guy out of the paint, uh, you can pretty much live with any other shot. Here's my question, thinking through all this. A lot of that, I, I think, is predicated on so much of the game back then being a little bit more, you know, one-on-one. You, you talked about this at Sloan, I think, uh, last year on sort of the evolution of the game with spacing and the three-point shot and how it's changed just even from the time you came into the league to today. Would you would you be able to have the same kind of uh, data-driven scouting on your single matchup in a game now? Or do you have to kind of, in other words, is there more team concepts or are there more help principles that go into it with a group of guys, you couldn't do it as an individual. You'd need to actually incorporate the entire unit at the same level. Well, that was always the rub because I still had to conciliate a guy's strengths and weakness um, against our team principles. I, I couldn't just go rogue and start, uh, you know, trying to defend a Ray Allen um, a certain way, which goes against our principles defensively. And so it was a learned skill to say, okay, well. I know our team principles dictate, you know, we got to keep him out the middle, but sometimes, you know, making him go to the middle at this play is actually a better percentage play for me. And, you know, I was lucky to play for great coaches, Jeff Van Gundy and, and Rick Adelman, um, and Eric Spolstra, who allowed me a little, a little bit of, free, of, of, of uh, free safety uh, out there. And when I was, when I felt I can get an edge by doing something counter to what our team did, I was allowed to do that. And I wouldn't rec- recommend that for everybody, but but it worked for me. And so it was always a constant battle of understanding, okay, what are our team principles? And I always said team principles always come first. But then where can I gain surplus by maybe maybe going against that a couple times a game? How much did you work with your teammates? Did you ever share information with them and say, look, when you're when you're on him or when I'm on him, you know, here's here's the goal. We want to make him go left. Or we want to make him, you know, he's, he's got this tendency to shoot at 18 on the left side of the court, but don't let him get a step or get inside that, whatever. How, are you sharing that with your teammates and bringing them into that? Yeah, there's certain situations where um, that information is super, super helpful. And, you know, more often than not, it had to do with players in isolation situations. Obviously, again, when I played... Um, much more isolation than, than today. But in, in an ISO situation, um, when a guy caught it on the on the elbow, like a, like a McGrady, McGrady was so good going to his left hand, so good. And so, you know, if you if you got caught in a switch on, on T-Mac, you say, you know what, he's so good going to his left hand, take your chances with him going to his right. He, you know, he shoots a high percentage, but, uh, you know, he's more more willing to settle for that, that the step back jumper going right. And so you, you take your chances. Um, and then in the posts, you know, when there when there actually was post players in the NBA, um, the the left shoulder split against right shoulder split were vast. Right. And and that's where I could really help my teammates. Hey, look, if if you know if, if the guy gets in the post, make him go over his right shoulder and live and live with the results. And um, you know, I was I was always a top you know ten post defender in the league, and I, I took that. Uh, as, as a badge of honor, you know, I wasn't very big. I'm about 220 pounds, six eight, but I can defend guys much, much larger to me just by by picking the right shoulder and taking a sh- one one of the shoulders away. And you know, and so after doing this for for 
for years, I, I understood where I could where I could make a guy just a little more inefficient and and sort of steal basis points um, from dif- different areas on the floor. And over the course of a of a season or of career, all those points add up. Hmm, interesting. So we're still about you know ten years ago in terms of talking through this timeline. What what do you think in the last decade has change i mean just even before you know you left the league a few seasons back like when you went to miami are more players doing this do you have more teammates with buy-in how how did it evolve over the ensuing years after you know houston you know i think today's player they understand the concept of what can really help and what can really hurt all right even if they can't really explain the math behind it um, players are always going to do what they need to do to maximize their uh, their earning power, right? Uh, and so if, if people say, look, it makes a lot of sense to shoot a couple more threes a game, guess what? Players are going to work on their game to shoot a couple more threes and, and raise their percentages because in the end of the day, they, they know that could be a couple of points on their, on their per-game average. Um, and so while I don't think that the education of an understanding of, of statistics in general has gotten better, uh, I think the idea of of how to leverage the basketball math is 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 much better understood than than when I finished ten years you know five years ago and when I played ten years ago. So one thing I've talked about with other front office folks is the idea of accepting data and analytics and statistics as part of that prep, and then of course the the resistance to it. I don't think it's specific to basketball as a field in general, but. Talk to me a little bit more about why you think certain players or maybe so much of the culture in a way is resistant to the, you know, quote unquote analytics label. You know, to be honest, I don't think that NBA players are different from the gen pop. Math is scary. <laughs> yeah. I, still, I still have I get the heebie-jeebies from my calculus <laughs> exams at Duke. I mean, math is really intimidating. And, uh, you know, I was lucky to take stats in college, and and that really was a game changer to get in high school and, and in college. But just to understand what, you know, what what's, what standard deviation is, what, what what's a what's a normal bell curve look like? What are the implications of that? Uh, what are the implications of sample size? So that like the basic, um, just mathematical theories behind stats, which people who are in analytics and, and in math get and, and take for granted, most people don't don't get that. And, and it just whatever is, is new is, is scary. And, you know, I think, you know, personally, I think every kid should have to take a statistics class in, in, in high school um, because to become statistically literate, uh, it, it helps you understand our world and probability and demystifies a lot of things that um, are intimidating. Um, and so, you know, I look at NBA players not as as anti-math. I, I look at them as a reflection of the general population out there. I actually did not like my high school statistics class and dropped it. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> it, it, uh, I, I don't know if it was scary. I've always been comfortable with numbers, but I, I think when I came back around to it in college, the sort of theory or concept was the thing that made a lot more sense to me. And I think when you're given just the numbers, you can miss the forest through the trees. And, you know, where I sit, I I so often feel that's the case with this sort of dichotomy of, you know, film versus analytics and resistance to... To me, it's all the same thing, but you have to make sure you're talking the same language. You have to make sure 
you have the same goal and really connect the ideas, what you see on the court, the number is only a measurement or a reflection of that thing. Yeah. And, you know, I went to a very good high school and uh, statistics was almost looked down upon by the kids who were in, you know, Calc 1 and Calc AP Calc, Calc 2. It's, right. it's looked at this like very simple, it's not math, it's just a bunch of, you know, it's great for calculating batting averages. Um, and so like statistics sits in kind of a weird place in our educational system. Yeah, agreed. Um, all right. So what's the, what's the biggest thing right now that, that you would say the average fan gets wrong about how a typical NBA team and a player is using data as part of his prep? For me, the way I, I explain this, I do a bunch of speeches on, on, data in today's world, um, to me, data is a risk tool. That's all it is. And, you know, when we talk about risk, you know, risk generally results from uncertainty. You know, in, in, in the free market, it's uncertain from the marketplace or the failure of projects or, or accidents or national, you know, natural disasters, uh, things that you just don't know about. And look, if we, if we could quantify all those things and understand exactly what our risk is, it gives you a huge heads up on just trying to plan and, 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 and live. Um, and so, you know, for me, the analytics and the data were not that much different from reading the qualitative scouting report that, you know what, Kobe Bryant has an amazing first step. You know, he's, he's, a, he's got a great right hand. He's got a great fadeaway. Like all those told, you know, told a story. And in my mind, I'm putting together, you know, sort of an unofficial quantitative scouting report on, okay, I got to keep Kobe away from his right hand. You know, he's, right. got, a tough, he's got a tough fadeaway. And so that's it's, it's always existed in this game. Just with the data, you're able to pinpoint what your risk actually is in a more succinct level. And it's not the answer. You know, and, and, you know, when analytics go wrong, people are, are the first to, just, you know, rise up in, in, in anger and say, oh, the numbers are wrong. Analytics are wrong. No, it, it, it just shrinks your risk. It, it, it may shrink. It does that, and, and that doesn't mean it's always going to be 100%. And understanding band of performance, margin of error, um, if you stay within the band of performance, more often than not, you're going to get the answer right. And it's, you have to play the long game. It's the long game. It's not, you know, understand sample size, understand um, uh, themes like that. And, right, right, right. And that goes back to just the general understanding of, of, of stats and, and what statistics really are. So, do you, I mean, to me, I feel like one of the things that's sort of on the rise in the last few years, especially as the game has changed and we've got the three-point shot is basically a straw man that blames analytics for any decision gone bad or any outcome that isn't ideal. Do you buy into that? Do you see that more where, you know, if Houston loses a playoff series, for instance, it's the fault of the analytics. Not that trying a style that maybe either mitigated risk or was informed decision-making that maximized or optimized what they had, got them that far, it said the analytics is the thing to blame for the loss. Yeah, well, you, you saw that last weekend with the Baltimore Ravens, who are, you know, are probably the most analytically forward NFL team out there. And, you know, they, they have a, 
uh, a subpar performance and you know everyone's ready to, to, to burn it down and try something else and you know in this business you have to have a, a, a fair process you have to have systems in place that you know what this is our philosophy we believe in it we have we're able to replicate it and we're able to measure it and that is the power of data not only in sports but in any organization uh, to be able to replicate what what your cultural values are because if you can't do that all of a sudden you fall prey to all the biases of cognitive bias and recency bias and uh you name them about, about a, I, I, i've named them. them yeah <laughs> I, i've done it i've written a small treatise about it oh and those are those are the downfall of any organization and you may you may have a hot streak you know and you may get lucky and, and you may have some success with that but it is hard to have sustained success over over seasons over decades um play, playing that game so let's stay with the game today. I've certainly alluded to it in this conversation. Do you think basketball has now become more complex than it was 20 years ago? I've had many colleagues say one of the one of the maybe disconnects between the average fan now and you know when we were growing up was the game is nothing like when you play it at the Y or in the driveway. What are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, today's player much more skilled. Even from when I played, uh, on average, the, the ability for the, today's player uh, to, to handle it, to shoot it, um, the off-season training, the nutrition, they're much more fit, they're much more athletic, I believe, nowadays. Um, you know, it's a, lo- it's a longer player. So it's, it's a different, it's just a different game um, than, than we're used to from, from, you know, from Magic's 80s to the 90s to today. It's a game that's predicated on speed, not necessarily strength. Um, and so, yeah, it's much different from the game of the YMCA. Um, obviously, the, the, the advance in the, in the search for space and shooting um, has forced defenses to play differently, have, have forced the game to, to get smaller. Um, and so it's, just, it's always been complex, but in a different way. No, it's, I think it's just a different type of complexity. You know, look, when I <laughs> when I played for the Memphis Grizzlies, the first day of training camp, uh, my rookie year, we were, we were working on X, Y, and Z post traps. You have to, and, yeah, <laughs> and, and and all of the just rotations out of out of double team in the post. Right. Now, if you said, okay, we got to double team the post, guys. <laughs> no, no, to do, no, nowhere to go. Um, so it's it's a, just a different type of complexity. With in terms of X's and O's, sticking on that idea, do you think from the fan standpoint that that you know yes you had a lot more like here's the way I see it you had a lot more stuff happening in the paint in a smaller more contained area now today it's not only spread out but there's more movement and so it changes the X's and O's the responsibility who's tagging what what kind of coverages are we in everything's so pick and roll heavy so you have less isolation. And therefore, when you follow the thing, the thing is more complex. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's a fair assessment. I think that's a fair assessment. And you have to be a, a, a basketball wonk to, to really be able to think about that and the, and the implications of that. You know, I, I still stand by what makes basketball the greatest sports in the entire world is seeing the, the, the most athletic, highly skilled athletes in the world perform under pressure. 
and that's not going under, you know, going anywhere. And uh, you know, the level of competition is is really high in the NBA right now. And the compelling part is okay when the chips are on the table. And there's two minutes to go. How does player X respond against player Y? Who's going to make the play? And so uh, that's the beauty. You know, the, the, the methods can change. But what it comes down to is can a player produce when the pressure is on the highest? And that's, that, will, that will be the, uh, the mainstay of, of, of NBA basketball. So I think this is a great analytics topic. How do you think the game changes in the last two minutes or the last minute or whatever it is and then what does that say about all our data-driven principles where we're our sample sizes get smaller if things really do change how do we make informed decisions what's your what's your take on that entire sphere of end game sort of you know everything changes at the end of the game Ben, are you asking if there's clutch? If clutch is real? You're trying to get my opinion on clutch. <laughs> uh, um, you know, it's a sore subject. You know that that's like Twitter-worthy material here. I'm doing what I can. Yeah, you know, give give yeah. me a break. Look, <laughs> no, I don't know. Look, just go I, ahead. You know, I don't think I don't think guys materially change when it's three minutes to go. Um, now, certain players may get more aggressive. The, the better players may get more aggressive and say, okay, I need to impose my will on the game. Uh, but generally, when it is the game's on the line, the guys who are able to think the game, who are able to be in the right place, both at the start of a play and at the at, at, after a couple of rotations, um, guys, who, uh, guys who can make shots, they're going to do that whether the the pressure is light or whether it's whether it's heavy and i've always believed that you know guys who guys who can finish a game are the guys who can, who can think the game and it's nothing to do with with heart or, or desire right and i think uh, I, I really wasn't even thinking about clutch as a label but more of the idea that when you like for instance historically offensive efficiency has plummeted at the end of games let, let you know late possession where you can set your defense, your shooting field, your field goal percentages go down, things like this. Is that the result of heightened intensity on defense? Is it having, to, you know, do you, do you simplify your offense and therefore you're not running your best stuff? Like that's, that's really where I was going with that. And I think from an analytics standpoint, the most fascinating carryover is then what does that say about a playoff series where you get rest and you get preparation and all the stuff that goes into that? Yeah, well... You know, the correlation between points per possession and time uh, on the shot clock is, is pretty it's pretty linear. Um, and so, obviously, later in the game, teams are much more conservative. They don't attack as, as quickly. Um, so, later you get in that shot clock, it's, 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 tough, it's tough for sledding. And if you have an all-star, uh, you, you, you have one weapon. But if, you, if the talent level shows up in the shot clock... And so that's what we're all trying to find talent for the end of the shot clock. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that's an opportunity, you know, something that's, that's always happened uh, for all time in basketball that you have to look at situations or why, why has this always been this way? And is there a different way to a- approach these, these games? And uh, it's the, the people that, that sort of figure, figure out the things that have always been done and maybe not to the, the level of success um, that teams hope, that's opportunity. That, that's the exciting part of our job. I mean, I, I mentioned the playoffs a second ago. Would you say your preparation, all the things we talked about earlier in the show, does that 
remain the same in the postseason, or is there tangible stuff that either you or your teammates uh, shifted into that was different come playoff time? The playoffs are a whole different animal. It's a whole different animal because, uh, you know, what the team's game plan is between games one and game four, completely different. And, and you know, that that's when coaches really, really make their money and, and um, their adjustments show and the adjustments to the adjustments and the adjustments to the adjustments to the adjustments. Um, and the, the pace of, of really your life, everything just slows down. It's much more intense. And it's, it's, it's a different brand of basketball. And until you've been in there and been in a tough seven-game series, you, you don't really understand it. And it, I don't know if it really translates through television. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a different mindset. You're, you're much more in tune with every little detail. That's why you see guys running back on defense in the first quarter, and you may not see that till the third quarter in the regular season. Um, every, every mistake is, is magnified. Every inch is, is, is earned. Um, it just becomes a much more intense focused, um, game, but look, you don't all of a sudden reinvent yourself in the playoffs. And so the playoffs are, are, are a, it's, it's an accumulation of the habits you've built since day one. And, and so the great teams who in the regular season are usually the great teams in the playoffs because they have better habits than the rest of the league. And so that's that's also the joke. You can't just all of a sudden flip a switch. No such, thing, no such thing as that. You are who you are in the playoffs, but you better be the best version of yourself in the playoffs. Can you take 60 seconds and maybe just describe for everyone listening the difference, just, you know, your different game-to-game prep, you're on the road, you got limited time, you're traveling all over the country in the regular season versus what you were alluding to in the playoffs as you get deep in a series? <laughs> well, the regular season, you know, you usually get into a town about 7 o'clock the night before. Uh, you may grab dinner with some teammates. Uh, you may, may see some friends. Um, you're not really thinking about the game, though, to be honest with you. You know, you're, 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 you know, you're not going out to do anything crazy. You know, when you, when you wake up the next morning, okay, now my – my game prep really starts. I'm good at breakfast. Okay, we're going. I'm going. I'm the bus to go to shoot around. You step in the gym. Okay, now you start thinking about. Okay, we're playing the Celtics tonight. What do I have to do? Yada yada yada. When you get the playoffs, it's it's pretty consuming. Um, it's it's pretty consuming that uh, it really dominates your thoughts. Um, you're thinking about every single play. There's so much media coverage and scrutiny that. Um, every play is analyzed, and so you know the worst thing is to lose a game in the playoffs because you got two days to think about and answer questions about it. So that's why you see teams that that usually lose a game come out like gangbusters the next, and and there's a zigzag effect. Um, but the, you know, you know, Pat Riley used to tell us like, look, tell you, tell your wife and kids goodbye for the next uh, you know <laughs> two and a half months. We, we're, we're on a mission, and uh, you know it'll be worth it at the end. <laughs> Is it is it fair to say in a playoff series you you know when you step on the court you feel like you know everything about your opponent by the time you get going from a tendency standpoint yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think you understand the individual you're playing against now again there's so many wrinkles and and plays and look you, you know the the basic plays there's, there's no secrets in terms of uh, the base plays and, and the favorite sets of a team. Uh, they ran in, in, the, in the regular season, um, but there, there's so many nuances and wrinkles that you, you can't 
fall in love with the notion that, oh, I really know the Indiana Pacers, or I, you know, I know the Minnesota Timberwolves. Um, and so you, you have to be a constant learner, a constant learner about what's going on, how, how has this changed, how, how, how do teams run uh, a wrinkle in, in their sets. Um, and so you're, you're just hyper-vigilant um, about every little detail and, and change that was different from the regular season. If I asked you to put a number on it on a scale of one to ten, is that like a is that like a nine or ten in the playoffs in terms of how much you know about your opponent? And then what I'm really interested in, what is it in the regular season? Is it a five? Is it a seven? What's that difference in your perspective? I would say it depends. Um, you know, I, I played in in the Western Conference for most of my my you know, 10 years in, in the league. And so like I played, you know, D Wade twice. And so, even though I saw him on TV and I didn't watch much TV during uh, basketball during the, the season when I played, because I try to get away from it. But uh, so when I played a D Wade or a Paul Pierce, like I just wasn't as comfortable playing against those guys. I only played against them twice a year um, versus a guy, um, you know, like Kobe, who I, who I saw four times a year in, in Houston and in Memphis, and you sort of understand those guys a, a little more. So there, there is definitely a comfort level, Western Conference, Eastern Conference. Uh, but when you get in the playoffs, look, after, after game, you know, after game two, you, you know a guy probably nine, nine, 9.5. Um, you're dialed in. You know, but, but really by the, uh, the sixth or seventh game in a series, you're not even really reading about the personnel uh, uh, right. scouting report. Because you're a, you're so sick of even <laughs> thinking about the guy you're playing against, and you don't want to you want to look at him. Um, but it's more you about know the, it, right? More about the game plan at this point. Yeah. Um, speaking of D Wade, like how is a star like him? Is is his prep the same as what we've been talking through? Is is does he have you know different preparation because he's got to be that guy doing stuff at the end of the shot clock at the end of the game? What what was your experience like that? playing next to superstars like him you know it, it was really amazing to play um with with d wade you know you talk about you know in my in my estimation the third greatest shooting guard of all time um it, it, he was so focused on his on his body and preparing his body um, and obviously he took a lot of punishment over the years uh, getting up through through a line and and attacking the, the basket and so uh it, it was amazing to watch how he prepared, just get physically getting his his his, uh, his body ready, you know. And you know, it was very different for me. I, w- I was a grinder. I was getting shots up, and I was getting literally in a physical lather before every game because um, I wasn't good enough to <laughs> to go. So I had to do that. To, to get... Is that is that the Kevin Garnett school of pregame lather? Yeah, I I got I had to get in a lather. I had, if I didn't get that lather, I thought I was I wasn't ready to play. Uh, but you know, but D Wade, he was. Uh, you know, I tell you what, I don't think there was anyone who I played against who had a better burst than him. You know, his, his playoff and he had playoff burst and he had regular season burst. And there were there were days where you know his regular season burst, like man, that's that's pretty special. And then he get in the playoffs, you know, and I'm thinking. You know, the, the, against the Spurs game, uh, I think it was game four in 2013, it was like, holy cow. It, it's an otherworldly burst. We're talking like top 1% of the 1% athletes ever to play sports. And uh, just, uh, you know, just an unbelievable competitor and, and fantastic teammate. So it was, that, that was a fun part. You know, I got, I got to play with legends here in Miami, but they're just tremendous teammates and, and just great guys. And, um, you know, I, I tell people the, 
the same fart jokes we were laughing at when we were 13 years old or the same fart jokes we were laughing at when we were 30 playing for <laughs> NBA championships. You know, that, that's, that's the NBA, and that's, that's what I miss the most, those bus rides and those, those locker room sessions. Well, there's one thing you did better than D. Wade, which is take charges. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm paying for it now with my early arthritis, man. Um, that that's a that's a segue into the final thing that I wanted to get you out of here on your Take Charge Foundation. Tell people about that. I've discovered this a while back and thought it was pretty fantastic work. Uh, talk talk about how that came about and how people you know plug it away. How can people help? How can people get involved? Oh well, we're super proud of the Battier Take Charge Foundation and. Uh, for those basketball fans out there who thought I should name uh, name it the Batty A Block Foundation, you know, shame <laughs> on you. Uh, you know, play on words. We, you know, my wife and I, my wife Heidi and I, we, we feel very strongly, very that we were so fortunate to receive amazing opportunity. And uh, as a kid, I said, you know what? If I ever make it to the big time, it's my duty to help kids just like me who had the talent, the drive, and the, and the motivation, but not the opportunity, uh, make it big. And so uh, we started this uh, foundation 10 years ago, and we award college scholarships to at-risk kids in Miami and Houston and, and in Detroit, where we're from. And uh, we've graduated over tw- over 30 kids now in our program and uh, offered mentorship programs for them. And, and, and just we're trying to, to, to find kids who are going to change our world and, and and say, you know what, we're, we're part of their journey. So you can read all about our foundation at TakeChargeFoundation.org. Uh, we got a big wine uh, event coming up very soon called Cabernet with Battier. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's It's coming up, Cabernet with Battier. Usually we do Battioke, which is my, my karaoke jam uh, for charity, but this year it's wine. I'm a big wino, so... Um, so check it out. And if you want to get involved, we, we, we're always looking for friends who want to donate their service or their time or, or, or their money, of course, uh, to help some amazing kids and, uh, you know, change the dynamic in our, in our country. And if you're a kid, how do you get, do you, do you apply? Do you where where can you go? Yeah. If you're in one of our three markets, uh, if you go to the website, you see the local, um, Organizations that we partner with, uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters, Kip Academy, Horizons Upward Bound. If you're part of their program, you're eligible to uh, uh, to, to win a scholarship from uh, the Take Charge Foundation. Awesome. Shane, thanks so much for taking the time. Ben, thanks for having me, man. Once again, a huge thanks to Shane for taking the time out to walk us through some of those concepts and principles and how things have changed over the years. I thought there were a number of Little nuggets in there just worth reflecting on as I pour over my notes here. One of them is the idea of, in a playoff series, how you have to be a constant learner. And I think this ties into things I've talked about before with all-time level players where, as the series goes on, can you process what defenses are throwing at you and then come up with counters? It's one thing to have some semblance of counters in your repertoire, but if you can't, you know, sync that whole process up with what you're reading on the court and then what you have in your bag, then it doesn't do you too much good. So players like LeBron James, a former teammate of Shane's in Miami, I've always thought for years there's a number of examples of him getting stronger as playoff series go on because by the time you get to game five or game six, you've seen all of the counters to the counters, to the counters, to the counters that Shane spoke about. Uh, Another one, of course, was 
how fascinating it is that he had, you know, 20 or 25 minutes alone with Sam Hinkie and Daryl Morey, uh, just sort of going over the defensive strategy and the tendencies of a matchup. I think it speaks to how actionable data can be for a player, probably in any sport, when you take the time to dig into the minutia. It's one thing to, you know, say, here's our team approach tonight. Uh, you know, these guys are great in transition, so we got to get back. We're going to make one adjustment, and you know they're going to run some set, so watch out for that set. This is how we want to play it. That's one thing. But to go into that level of detail for every player, for eight players in the rotation, for nine or ten players that you might see on the other side of the court, that was pretty interesting to me. And then, of course, the last thing, that little nugget, him talking about how today's players are in many ways more skilled, how the game is about length and speed and all the shooting, all the all the skill development that has come with sort of the spacing boom and, you know, we, we call it small ball and pace and space, but, man, some of these guys with their ball handling skills, with their reads, with the passes they make, uh, I'm in complete agreement, as many of you know, that whew, today's basketball just blows me away in many regards. I'm a huge fan of some of the stuff in the 70s, love the 80s, love the 90s, uh, got a little ugly there at the end of the 90s and the early aughts. So I love basketball in many different forms, but today's players, incredibly skilled. Uh, if you want to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. You can sign up there and get access to articles, proprietary stats, uh, post-show podcasts sometimes with guests, all sorts of other little perks. There's a community where members discuss basketball uh, all the time, lots of historical things that they discuss, old players and fantasy teams and things like that patreon.com slash thinking basketball great way to support the podcast otherwise thanks so much for listening all the way to the end uh next week it will be most improved players of the 2020 season you can let me know on twitter at lg35 elgee35 who your candidates are not not just going to do the top two or three players by the way we're going to go deep on that so guys on your team's that you think have made material improvement this season. Let me know. Thanks for listening. Otherwise, I will talk to you in that next episode, and I hope that you are having a great day.